Today we have an interview with Claire Potter. She is the author of the book Welcome to the Circular Economy, founder of award-winning design studio based in Brighton, and a senior lecturer at the University of Sussex. She is a champion of the Plastic Free Pledge campaign, Surfers Against Sewage, Oceans 8 campaign, and Project Networth. She is a fierce voice for our planet, and a determined activist who discusses the environmental challenges of our future with urgency, but also determination and hope. Enjoy. Claire Potter, welcome to the One Planet podcast, or should I say welcome to the circular economy? Oh, yes. Welcome to the circular economy and everything. Yeah. <laughs> nice to meet you. So we've been enjoying your book. And one thing that I read in Scientific American is human-made stuff now outweighs all life on Earth, including, you know, trees and animals. It's hard to take in. So it really underscores our impact on the planet, which you outline so concisely and accessibly in your book and bringing it down to actionable ideas. Just tell us how you take the three R's, the reduce, reuse, recycle, and you expand upon the, the different elements of the circular economy. Yes, the circular economy is something that some people might have heard of, some people might never have heard of. But really, the book is all about trying to encourage people to realize that whether it's a terminology they know or not, there's actually a lot of stuff that they already do. And a great example is the three R's, so the reduce, reuse, recycle that we know from the 70s, the 80s, I grew up with the three R's being the thing that we did at school. But when we think about that, the three R's as we've been using it, the reduce, the reuse and the recycle, quite often it's been the recycle, which is the thing that we tend to have been doing maybe the most successfully. It's the thing that's pushed most for industry. Um, and actually we're pretty good generally in most developed countries in actually recycling our waste. But the first two, the reduce and the reuse, we need to do a little bit more work around those. So the circular economy looks at a hierarchy of needs and a hierarchy of actions that maybe we should be taking instead of jumping immediately to the end of the recycle, for example. So there are lots of things like reducing the amount that you use, reducing the things that you're doing, even things like reducing the dairy and the meat in your diet, which could, you know, obviously go towards your carbon footprint and through reusing all the way through repairing and refurbishment and redirecting of stuff if you don't need it through to other people that might need it and make use of it um, and basically just trying to connect the dots so there isn't anything that escapes so the way nature works everything is used by something for something so there isn't any waste there's nothing that escapes out of the system and what circularity is trying to do is to kind of knit everything back together just like nature does and you live this as well as you said you practice this. Are you still living on a houseboat? I'm not sure if that's always possible year round. Yeah, so I've got a houseboat that's currently being renovated. Unfortunately, with COVID, that's something that took a little bit of a hit for uh, for time. But yeah, I mean, they're going to be process of actually building a tiny house. So that is another project that I've got on the go. And actually, yeah, this is what I live. This is what I breathe. When I was at university myself, I was doing interior architecture. So that's what I started off doing. And it was at that point, I realized that buildings and the decisions that designers make, and a designer could be anything from a fashion designer through to an automotive designer or an architect. The decisions that we make are really impactful. And when I was at university, it was sort of like my way of thinking about how architecture and buildings could be less impactful. And so that's actually gone into my own life through my own practice. And yes, my own soon-to-be tiny house as well. So living in as small of a footprint as possible. Yes, because you really see also the vulnerability 
you know, living on a houseboat or living in a smaller house, you can experience the vulnerabilities that people in the global South might have. You just think in that smaller scale. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's quite interesting with houseboats. The Ellen MacArthur's, we have the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, which if anybody follows Circularity, you definitely know the name. But the Ellen MacArthur Foundation was set up by Ellen MacArthur, the sailor. And the story goes that she really realized once she was on her sailing boat that you can't just suddenly nip off somewhere else to get something. You have to think about what you have in your locality. Because when you're in the middle of an ocean, you can't just go and get something. And that's the same as our planet, really. We are basically, we're not on a ship, but we're on you know, the Earth ship, in a sense. We can't just nip off and get something else. We have to be much more self-sustaining and utilize the stuff that we have on our planet in a much more intelligent way. And that's what started her own journey into circularity. So yes, there's a lot of links with circularity and living in small spaces and also being so close to nature. You know, you're really vulnerable in spaces that are so close to nature and living, I'm in the UK, living in the UK, we don't have as many impacts on the way that we live as much as other places of the world. So that's something that we should be definitely more mindful of. Climate change is affecting all of us, but it's definitely affecting, quite honestly, usually the most deprived areas of the world far, far greater than it does in the West currently. Yes. And on that theme of water, our oceans have done so much to save us from the worst brunt of climate change, as you well know, and what will happen when they stop absorbing heat and protecting us. Yeah, exactly. We talk about the carbon sinks of being the Amazon rainforest and trees, but what we kind of forget is the oceans absorb a huge amount of carbon dioxide and actually can put out a whole load of oxygen. So every sort of two to three breaths that we take have actually come in theory from the ocean. That's how much oxygen they are giving to the world. So the more increasing dead zones and the ability for our oceans to not be self-regulating, it's going to have a massive knock-on effect on all of our life on land, as well as all of our life in the oceans. And you have a number of initiatives around this beyond your design initiatives with the Claire Potter Studio. You founded the Plastic Free Pledge campaign, the Surface yeah. Against Sewage. Yeah, so Plastic Free Pledge was something that spun out of my work, my volunteer work with Surface Against Sewage. This is a UK-based marine charity, actually originated down in Cornwall in the sort of, I think it was late 80s or so. And basically it was Surface campaigning about the, the sewage and the pollution of the oceans. And now SAS, as we call ourselves, has grown to be a whole UK wide and it is run mostly by volunteers. So I'm one of the volunteers in my local area, which is the Brighton Hove chapter. Uh, and we do everything from leading beach cleans through to educational talks. And we all kind of have our specialisms. Um, and a few years ago, we were doing so many beach cleans and my design studio, because we do behavior change, we do product design research. We were kind of saying, it's great to do the beach cleans, but why don't we do something that's maybe a little bit more preventative rather than, you know, just picking it up. So it's sort of proactive, not reactive. So that's what Plastic Free Pledge was. It was a campaign that was quite early doors with regards to these sort of the plastic campaigns. It was before Blue Planet 2, and a lot of people sort of started to realize plastic and the impacts of plastic on the oceans at that point. And yeah, it was about reduction of very, very easy to reduce plastic. So I think like straws was the first campaign. We did a whole educational program to show people where the uh, hidden plastics might be. So all of our ambassadors would have a good understanding of the different options and alternative materials, for example. But yeah. And it's sort of gone into other different things that I do with my volunteer work at Surface Against Sewage as well. Yes. Tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. So SAS, all the way UK based and in Brighton, we're we're probably one of the most active chapters, as we call. We're all split into chapters. 
Um, and we've done everything from leading campaigns like with Plastic Free Pledge, that was one of ours. We've also worked directly with the council as well. So looking at the procurement, so everything the council actually buys, reducing the single-use plastic there. All the way things to helping decision-making with regards to removing the disposable barbecues from the beaches of Brighton Hove. You're not allowed to use a disposable barbecue now in the city. You can take a reusable one, which is great, and take it back home afterwards, but you can't get those flimsy foil cheap ones. Um, they're not allowed on the beaches in Brighton anymore. So something like that is a huge decision and it's going to impact not only the litter that's going to get left on the beaches, but also the things that just like single use and disposability. So we're really trying to campaign to get things away from single use and more into reuse. So being you know, a bit more preventative rather than just reactive. But we still do things like beach cleans. We've got a big one coming up for Brighton Pride. It's one of the biggest events in the city. Thousands and thousands of people are going to come to the city, which is amazing. But we need to make sure that the beaches are kept as clean as possible. So we've got big, big cleanups with DJs that are happening during the event where volunteers can come along, get involved, pick up whatever's on the beach for half an hour, two hours, whatever people can kind of do. And it's lovely. We've got a brilliant small network of reps ourselves. And then we've got a great array of people that just turn up every single time we do a beach clean, which is fantastic to see as well. And of course, the ideal thing, and just what you address in your designs is not just the cleaning up, but we're actually moving towards more reusable containers. And William McDonough said a thing to me in terms of the very early reusable containers, uh, they had the tracking chips, but they were radioactive. Yeah. So the there are so many things that we sort of are learning more and more and more about. So, uh, so yeah, it's definitely something that is a progressing way of working. We've got another project that we'll be starting, which is actually looking at a deposit return scheme for the city. So we're working on a really like a micro scale with a pilot project. Uh, we're working with one location in the city that has multiple retailers that are food retailers, like a food hall. And we're setting up a really small pilot program for a couple of months where we'll have the stainless steel lunch boxes that people can actually get their takeaway in. And we're figuring out, you know, return rates and what are the barriers towards it and how people would sign up, how many people are interested in it. Um, so things like that. We know there's going to be issues. So we, we can try to figure out on a small scale what we could do. Then we can maybe prevent the, those issues and then move forward into a next one. So we are looking at very much preventative and continually learning, continually learning from every other project that's working. And there are so many across the world where there's really great practices of circularity that are gaining momentum. So yeah, we're all learning from each other all the time, which is brilliant. I'd like to see more of those shop designs because there is a sense of community. It's not just that it's good for the planet. On another level, and you must know it, it's good for our sense of well-being. To know we're not polluting, to know we're not you know, just damaging the planet, but you get to know every member of your community when you're not just throwing things away. You know, get to know how society works together. For sure. We'd say that Brighton and Hove is a bit like a bubble and we aren't in a bubble kind of shape because we've got the sea on one side and we've got the South Downs that wraps around the outer edges. So we've got access onto our national parks, the South Downs National Park. So we do sit in a little bubble. We've got a green, we had first green council. We have Caroline Lucas, who's an MP in Brighton as well. So we are very much a whole collective of people with a very similar mindset, but it becomes even more evident when you are working on projects that are more community-based, there is so much crossover and you do find that, you know, you'll talk to one person, they'll go, oh, do you know so-and-so? And you probably do know them, but if you don't, there's that immediate connection. Oh, I'll introduce you. 
I'll drop you their email and I connect you up because you guys have got stuff to talk about. So it's everything from people dealing with waste streams that are like, oh yeah, so-and-so needs this and oh, have you thought about that? And before you know it, this network has kind of bloomed across the whole city. Um, and that goes at every single level from sort of a public level all the way through to us working in industry. Everybody kind of can connect very closely and feel that they are part of something bigger and they're not operating alone, which is so important because it can be a little bit lonely if you're trying to do the good thing and you feel like you're on your own. And we're lucky that we very much have a great network in our city and beyond. And tell us how you also use technology to connect, to get the message out there and to encourage more civic participation. Sure. So, so technology is really important. We kind of work in lots of different ways. So as a studio, we do lots of stuff through Instagram. We try and get a lot of promotional stuff through there. Um, just little bits of legislation, explain to people we've got a, a studio site, which will have our main website. We've got a blog on that, but we don't use that as much because most of the stuff we do is through our other one, which is called One Circular World. And that's another kind of blog setup where it just explains the circular economy in a way that everybody can understand and everybody can relate to in some way. So yeah, not everybody's able to do everything on the circularity sense, but everybody can do little bits. And it gives examples and also things like the blog as well on there. It's just trying to get a little bit more transparency out to people so they don't feel that they're in the dark or they don't know what these terms mean. Um, so I'm a huge advocate for talking in plain English if at all possible. So there are so many acronyms that get thrown around and technical terminologies, which of course is any industry, but I always try and make sure that whenever I'm talking, it's in simple terms and plain terms that everybody can access. Uh, and things like legislation, it's really important to me that legislations or technicalities or reports and stuff like that, that may be are written in such a way that some people can't engage with. We try and sort of explain it in a different way or summarize it through Instagram or write a blog post on it. And then you quite often find that other people are doing similar things. So again, sharing the stuff that everybody else has done is really important. Also, you know, we're living in the center of the city. I don't know in terms of Ryden, it's a little outside of that, but you're reflecting very much on our systems. You know, we hear about creating smart cities, smart buildings, but people really have very little idea of what their future is going to look like and how we're going to redesign all our systems like housing, transport, climate, education, and then not to mention the heat waves that many of us are experiencing now and the storms. So what do you envisage for our cities and the rapid transition and planning that needs to take place? Yeah, that's a big one. And like you say, there's so much uncertainty. One thing that I really hope that we're going to see a lot more of is the integration of greenery back into our cities. Um, very lucky in Brighton. We are a very green, we're very leafy, tree-filled, park-filled city. I mean, I'm actually sitting in my office at the University of Sussex at the moment where I'm a lecturer, I'm a head of product design. And we have this amazing campus that is basically right on the edge of the National Park. And it is filled with trees. And it is wonderful to go walking around and hearing the birds, but also feeling how the temperature has dropped. So the temperature outside can be really, really hot but because of all the leaves. The temperature has dropped considerably. And there are so many studies that actually look at how the temperature can actually be regulated through greenery around the city itself. So that's what I really hope. I really hope that we're going to see more green cities. I'd love to see more collaborative projects. Things like localized growing food, I think that's something we're going to be seeing much, much more of. So how you would grow food in a city and it not come from such a long distance away. And also things like infrastructure, electrical infrastructure. So carbon-free transportation, 
cities are built generally with a concentration of people to the centre. And then you've got the suburbs where it becomes a little bit more maybe disconnected or wilder or, you know, wider apart. But the centre of cities, there is no reason why we can't have a much, much lower carbon way of working and actually transporting each other around the city. So things like we've got a bike high ski in Brighton, which you see much, much more in other, in other locations. So sort of the collaborative consumption of things, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of, as well as zero or negative carbon buildings. So buildings that might be absorbing carbon through, again, vegetation, through green roofs, generating their own power. It boggles me that every building, whenever it's built, is not designated to have to have its own power generation. Why is that not in the planning process? So having solar panels or some way of generating their own power. Personally, I think that should just be a given, you know, it has to be forward planning. It has to be forward thinking. It shouldn't be an add-on or a that's too expensive. It should just be part of the building structure itself, its own power generation for sure. And just on that, an interesting technology that you probably come across Source.co, and there may be various versions of this. It was the first I'd, I'd heard about it. It was solar-powered water generation. I don't know what all the implications are for the whole ecosystem, but you can draw out the water from the atmosphere. You can do away with the plastic waste and communities that have no access to water or right within cities can have their water source piped into their system. And I guess cleaner than the pipe water. There are so many interesting innovations and that's another thing that I love about being so connected. The internet has got a lot to answer for, but it's brilliant for sort of seeing the stuff that, that's happening, even with really, really early stage projects. And there are so many people working in this kind of way to think about innovations and maybe around plastic reduction, maybe around power generation, maybe about connectivity and food growth. There are so many things that are going on. Um, I actually have to rewrite my modules that I teach every single year, <laughs> which to a lecturer might feel like a real pain, but it is great because there is so much that I can update with case studies, things that are just like, this is something I saw on Instagram last week. It's really, really early, but I can let the students know about it and let them know that these things are progressing, which of course then makes them feel positive because it's not just me as a lecturer saying, this is just what I'm interested in. This is my research area. So therefore you need to learn about it. It's about me saying, this is what I love, but look at all of these projects that are happening around the world by these incredible people with massively varying budgets who are all tackling the problem. So yeah, there is so much great innovation. It's hard to keep up. Claire, you mentioned that even if someone can't fully achieve living in a circular economy, they can always do little bits. And so I'm wondering, what are those first steps? How does someone initially dip their toes into living that lifestyle? It's the thing I get asked quite a lot. So whenever I do like educational talks with service against sewage or I go out to talk about circularity, quite often people come up and go, what do I do first? And it's always like, well, how do you live your life? And I know that sounds really kind of broad, but I can't really suggest things for people unless they figure out how it's going to fit. So one lady came up and she was talking to me about all the stuff she was going to buy to be plastic free. I was like, that's great. She goes, what takeaway cup would you recommend? And I was like, well, it kind of depends. Are you commuting? Are you riding a bike? Are you walking mostly? Are you going to get something to go in your car? You know, how would you be transporting your hot drink? And she goes, oh, right. Okay. Well, I don't really get many takeaway drinks. Quite often, if I'm going to get a coffee, I'll go and meet a friend. I was like, that's even better. Do you actually need a takeaway coffee cup then? 
<laughs> and she was like, oh, okay. Because we all see these wonderful Instagram, Pinterest, beautiful images of people living a zero waste, zero plastic life. And we think that's the uniform that I have to have. That's the stuff I need to become this person. The reality is you don't. So the best thing I always say to people, um, and quite often people look at plastic reduction as one of their first things, which is brilliant because not only is it reducing the materials, it's also reducing the potential health impacts on yourself and your family and the environment. So plastic's a great one to start with. And I would say, look at the plastic in your house. Do you get hand wash when maybe you could switch to a soap once you've used your hand wash up? Maybe you could get a bar of soap instead. If you're getting packaged fruit and vegetables, are you able to switch to loose? Sometimes people aren't, sometimes they're not because the cost quite often of the plastic wrap ones is actually lower than the loose ones. So some people can't do that. But I just say to people, just walk around your house with a bit of paper and just note down all the stuff that you see in plastic or even things that you could do. Do you take your lunch to work or to school? If you do, what's in your lunchbox? If you're buying it out, then maybe you could try taking it in, preparing it at home and having a lunchbox. And again, you don't have to go and get a stainless steel one. If you have a container that's already in your cupboards, you could utilize that until it wears out. And then maybe you could go and buy a new container for your lunch. So that's maybe the first thing to step is to look at the little changes that will help you on that start of the journey, but not be worried that you have to do everything at once because you really don't. So it sounds like maybe the first step is that mindset shift. Yeah, the first step for sure. Uh, and once people have sort of got into that thought of thinking, how do I get into circularity or how do I expand beyond this sort of that, the recycling and very much in the UK, almost everybody, if you ask them, do you recycle? Almost everybody will say yes. And um, the trouble with recycling is not everything is able to be recycled on our curbside schemes and depending on where you live is to what you can have recycled. So I live on a junction between two kind of counties. So what I can do in Brighton is very different to what they could do on the county next door and vice versa. So it becomes really confusing, but most people are able to recycle. So you can go, okay, you've got the recycling sorted. Let's think about reduction. Let's think about reuse. And then, you know, usually plastics is a great one to get people going. And then you can talk about maybe things that are a little bit harder. So maybe secondhand purchases instead of new. Or maybe thinking about borrowing something rather than purchasing something, which is a little bit trickier maybe for people to do straight off. So yeah, thinking about those easy steps and usually shopping switches, because we all have to shop. We all have to get our food every single week. So yeah, thinking how you can make little changes there is often one of the easiest ways that people can sort of get going. Yes. And how do you work on the legislation front? What are some initiatives that you have? Because really, ultimately, it's top down. I mean, there's a lot of red tape that comes with everything. But legislation can really help, particularly when you think that as individuals, quite often we're trying to do the best we possibly can. But we're trying to do the best we possibly can with sometimes pretty crummy choices that we're given by industry. So it feels that sometimes you're banging your head against a brick wall, that you're trying to reduce your plastic use, for example, and yet there's no options to allow you to do that. Or everything that you're getting is just so wrapped up in plastic, you feel that you can't actually affect any change. So this is where legislation can really help. So if you have legislation from the top down, it means that quite often we're going to get better choices as consumers. That means that we can make um, easier choices from the bottom up. 
So some of the legislation I've been working on in the last couple of years has come from the single-use plastic directive that was the EU's um, single-use plastic directive to look at how plastic can be reduced from marine litter perspective. So it was a really large report that was written. Uh, and from that, we had legislation that has just started to be written in the last two to three years to help enable the stuff that was recommended in the report. One of those I've been working around is around plastic bottles and lids. So I was on the committee helping to write that legislation. Sounds so nerdy, it's unbelievable, but it actually was really interesting. And it's even simple things like the fact that plastic lids to beverage containers at the moment can be detached completely. So the lid can escape from the bottle. Whereas from a recycling sense, I know we don't want to be recycling as the primary, but you want to recover as much material as possible. So there's legislation that's coming on board, which means that the actual lid itself will be attached to the body of the container, which means that in theory, you'll be able to keep it attached as long as possible, which means that more material can actually be recovered once it does go into its reprocessing cycle. So that's going to be great because it means it's easier for the consumer to understand, easier to do a good thing, and it means that more material potentially could get recycled back by industry. So yes, the legislation can be can be really good, good thing. And also it means that it has a bigger impact. You know, as soon as you feel that large industry is not getting away with things, then actually we need that. We need the grassroots activism, but we need industry to actually do better and far better than they're doing now. And legislation is definitely the way forward for that. Hi there, my name is Abby and I'm a junior at Wesleyan University. It was such an honor to take part in this interview and it has generated a lot of reflection for me on my own living habits and impact. I especially have been thinking about the word revolution. It has two different but related meanings. One, to overthrow a system. The other, to rotate, to turn, or as Claire puts it, to circle. In order to make an environmental revolution, we have to accept the nature of, of revolving. We have to be willing to allow our possessions to decay gracefully, to rotate hands, or to become something new. We have to embrace circularity and the transience of our existence. While I was thinking about this principle, I wrote down a little something to express how I was feeling and work through this idea. I thought I would read it to you before getting back to the interview. The earth spins on its tiptoes, around and around, and as it pirouettes it revolves, twisting and turning in an eternal orbit. Let me circle back. We bear witness the Earth's revolution, the sun sprinting across the sky, the moon gliding over our upturned faces. We watch a daily revolution, but all these days of revolution, millennials of revolving, and we have not started our own. Let me circle back. We proclaim the beauty of the circle of life, nodding our heads around and around in understanding, but we cannot accept that the circle of life is also a circle of death. Let me circle back. Nature goes on living and dying, living and dying, winter, spring, summer, fall. It is nature's revolution. Let me circle back. We claim to want revolution, but we look only in one direction, at ourselves. Instead of forward or backward, instead of looking at the soil or the sky, nothing can revolve when it is stuck. Let me circle back. Instead of straight lines, plastics heading directly to the ocean, products heading directly to the trash, straight lines that cut wounds into our home, we must draw sweeping, curving circles, connecting lines of care, gently rubbing salve into the wounds of our kind. Let me circle back. The earth spins on its tiptoes around and around, and as it pirouettes, it revolves, twisting and turning in an eternal orbit.
Thanks for listening. Let's get back to the interview. And you spoke about your teaching. So what are the principles that you make sure to get across to your students? I imagine somehow it, it feeds into the creative process of your book, Welcome to the Circular Economy, the questions they ask, the ideas they come up with. Tell us what are those founding principles that you impart and what have you learned along the way as a teacher? So uh, I started teaching, I think it was about eight years ago. So that was just as a visiting lecturer, I'd come in and give you a talk about how I got into doing what I was doing. And like many of us, it was not a direct route. It was sort of around and about and doing different things. I ended up doing what I do is kind of creating my own job. A lot of creatives end up doing that. Um, so it was mostly talking about that, how I started, where I went to and what I ended up doing. And then I was invited to write one of the modules on the product design course, which was around sustainability. At that point, I was like, well, we're using sustainability as a term less in industry. We're trying to be a bit more uh, almost cohesive and think wider than what sustainability can mean, but also trying to make it much tighter with the terminology because sustainability means something different to everybody. Whereas when we talk about circularity, that's got much more of a solidity to it, even though it's got lots of nuances. So that's when my first module came about. It was called the role of design in the circular economy. Because for that, I had to teach what the circular economy was, and of course how the circular economy is changing and expanding. And the lovely thing is teaching product designers, they can see the impact of the decisions that they're going to be making. One of the facts that I give them really early on is that about 80% of a product's environmental impact is decided at the design stage. So, and I usually have an image of like Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility or something like that on screen, because it is the decisions that we're making as creatives will have a huge knock-on effect on how that product could be used by the end user, by the second user, you know, how it might be able to be reprocessed or dismantled or repaired. Those are the decisions that we will be making with our pens or on our computer screens. So we really look at the circular economy from each of those different standpoints. So everything from waste streams through to designing for disassembly, using case studies along the way, even things like carbon footprinting, what that means, carbon offsetting, what that means, sustainable development goals, things that are great, things that are really not so great. Um, and I had one student a few years ago say that she's never been so upset and yet so excited in a module before because I was telling them this is the latest IPCC report this is how bad it is but therefore this is what we can do about it so I didn't sugarcoat anything I told them straight what was going on with the world but then also that gives them the fire to think and this is what we can do about it and that's what we really need from next generation is to tell them the truth of what's going on but then give them the tools to allow them to build back way better than has been done for the generations before. So yeah, working in education is fantastic and really, really enlightening. The questions they ask me, challenging me continually, which is brilliant, and also seeing the ideas they come up with, which literally will change the world. I certainly feel energized by our students as well. Speaking of the IPCC report, do you think we're headed to a two-degree world? Yes. In, in one word, I think we are. I think we're heading to at least two, maybe more. Um, the thing that upsets me most about those reports is not what's contained within them per se, but the fact that such a small amount of change seems to happen. And that's what is so frustrating is that we see, or I see a lot that we have so much concrete science 
about what needs to happen, how behavior needs to change, how infrastructure needs to be invested in. And yet we have politicians that are much more concerned about doing something completely different. And it, it really frustrates me because there will be a tipping point where we can no longer live in certain places around the world. Then that might already be coming. We're seeing devastating heat waves across much of the world already. Places, particularly in so New Delhi, I think the temperature has, has, has dramatically increased over the last few years. And we're going to see a huge amount of impact across the whole of the central band. Of The positive I see is that we can do this because we did it with COVID. Within six weeks in the UK, we're in full lockdown and everybody's behavior had changed and everybody was on board because all of a sudden there was a danger to our health. And then you can look at it from a different perspective and go, climate change is the biggest danger to our health we will have in the next decade. But because it's not a pressing urgency, not a lot seems to be done on the wider scale. So I really wish we could take all of that kind of mindset of what we saw during COVID across the world with how things changed quickly and have governments talk to each other. There was so much, you know, cross-pollination of information and data and best practice and things that didn't go so well. And everybody was sharing information on a global scale. And as soon as COVID became less of an issue, still is a huge issue, everybody just went back to business as usual. And for me, we need to take that learning on to how we can work with climate change as well. It was very interesting, that period, because I believe, I mean, though I know it's a bit utopian, in degrowth. <laughs> and we saw that contraction, which you can say is nature of the economy, but we saw that contraction during the height of COVID. And so it is really possible. I, but I believe in degrowth in so many areas. If we could just even think about fast fashion, you ha do you have some designs around that? Oh, fast fashion is such a massive thing. And it was, um, yeah, the degrowth, I completely agree, is that we always think about GDP and that exponential growth. And GDP is measured on basically sales, how much stuff is coming in and out of a country. And it's always the more, the better. It's not from an environmental perspective. That's really, really not true. And the speed that we're able to get stuff quickly regardless of the industry, is actually quite staggering. And that was one downside when I saw in COVID was the turnover of clothing, particularly the toxicity of how clothing is made, the human rights issues that go with fast fashion. If something is cheap, somebody or something is paying somewhere. So it might be the fact that the labor is exploited or very, very lowly paid. It might be that the toxins that got into the dyeing or the fabrication of the clothing or the product are not being treated properly. They're entering straight into our waterways. So the environment is paying. If it's cheap, it costs somewhere else for sure. And we see online retailers now that can see something by another, like by a fashion designer, for example, and, you know, have a factory in the Far East remake those designs and have them on the shelf within days. So this idea of seasonality has gone. Everything is a novelty. The quality is really low as well. So I've talked to um, a few people who manage charity shops, so secondhand stores, and they're saying that the items of clothing they get in that are maybe older are a higher quality, even though they're in theory had many more wares than the sort of the fast fashion cheap stuff that we see that's coming after maybe one, two, three wears. It's already coming to pieces. 
items are already coming off. Um, it's already looking worn. Um, and we shouldn't be thinking of things like clothing as a single use item or even a couple of wear item. This should be something that actually stays in your wardrobe and you love, or you can pass them to somebody else for many, many years to come because it stuff's got to grow. And if it's an organic material, i.e. in the sense it might be cotton, it's got to grow somewhere. You know, if you've ever grown your own food, you know how hard it is to grow things. And then if it's a synthetic, basically you're wearing a plastic, you're wearing a material that in theory is going to last forever. So isn't it crazy that we've taken basically the fossil fuels, turned it into a fiber, and then somebody's going to wear something once and it ends up in landfill, incineration, or dumped in the Atacama Desert, which is something we've seen a lot of images of textiles that being dumped in places of intense natural beauty and diversity for the sake of a couple of wares and something naughty. Fast fashion has got to stop. Yes. And just to outline, I believe the statistic is 21 billion tons of textiles sent to landfills each year. Yeah. It's utterly staggering. And this is something that we see change. We see change with the growth of the internet, the growth of um, styles being able to be shared so quickly. So things that were in fashion one day are not the next. We've seen it with the way that stores are actually changing our behavior by moving stuff around continually. So the thing that you see as you walk into the store one day is different the next. So you automatically think that something else is in fashion and that you need to purchase it. Um, adverts being pushed through our social media of the latest trends and, you know, following the algorithms of the people that you're actually following to try and push you the things to make you spend, spend, spend. All of this has just exploded over the last decade. But that's not to say that we can't push back. That's not to say that you can choose to not buy the thing just because some advert is showing you, you walk into a store and it's at the front door, really considering your actions because ultimately you'll be saving cash and you'll be saving the implications of that product not being bought as well. One of the newest things among me and my peers, we recently discovered ThreadUp, uh, which I'm not sure if you're familiar, but it's an online thrift store. And I was curious if you see that model as the future of online retail. Yeah, that's a great example. So we see, I've only seen a couple of examples of those. Funny, if I've got one written down, but I can't remember the name of it because I was going to be using it in my module, funnily enough, for next September. I was going to be like, oh, I'm going to add that in. And some of the big online stores, like Oxfam, I know have an online store in the UK and a couple of the other big charities also have online stores. But there's a couple of platforms that I've seen. Yeah, forgive me, I can't remember the name of them, but they try and collate together all of the different online offerings and in the way that is more like an online shopping experience if you were buying new. And I think, yeah, that's, um, that's a really interesting new model that we've sort of seen literally in the last couple of years. Because if people are going to be buying fashion, they're going to be buying it from somewhere. So why not be buying it secondhand, pre-loved, however you want to say and what was also interesting, we've got a program, I have to admit, don't watch it in the UK called Love Island. It's one of those sort of reality TV shows, um, but they were previously sponsored by one of these fast fashion online brands. And then this year they've partnered up with eBay. So all of the clothing that's going to be worn by the contestants on the show will be pre-loved and curated by the team through eBay, which is brilliant because maybe that's opening up a whole new audience that had never considered secondhand purchases, they will probably be going to look to eBay to maybe be buying other stuff. Um, you can buy new stuff on eBay. That has to be said. It's not just all secondhand stuff, but maybe this is going to be opening up to a different audience. So the more we can make it accessible to a wider range of people, the better. 
Yes. And it's really important to minimize. And as you say, I love this idea that it's heirloom. You're in a generation where you did receive heirlooms. People had more of a connection to what they make. Maybe you even make your own clothes sometimes. You should value this and the lives that have gone into it because we've actually just celebrated in America Juneteenth, which was uh, celebrating the freedom from slavery. But of course, it has not stopped really, just sort of been outsourced to different countries. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's kind of out of sight and out of mind. And in any industry, you will generally find that people are exploited in some way, but definitely with fashion, that has seen a huge amount of exploitation. We had the Rana Plaza factory collapse many years ago now, but it's still in the forefront of people's minds where you know, garment workers who were making garments for, this is before online cheap retailing really, but it was the high street brands that maybe were a lower value and making very, very cheap clothing. And of course, for profitability, the, the factory was packed with as many people as possible. And even though the workers themselves were saying that, you know, how the factory was looking a bit warm, there were cracks in the walls, it was ignored by the factory owners and eventually the building collapsed and many, many people lost their lives. So this is something that is a form of slavery. Um, they were working incredibly long hours in very inhumane conditions. When you think about how much something costs, instead of thinking, oh, wow, that's great. It only costs three quid. As a t-shirt or something, you could go, oh, that only costs three quid? It should be, well, how can it only cost three pounds? Why does it only cost three pounds? We should be asking more questions rather than just thinking, oh, great, it's cheap. Because, yeah, there's so much that's hidden. And what I love about um, circularity is that hopefully that will make a lot more of the supply chain transparent. So whether it's through companies that are maybe B corporations who have got a very, you know, very stringent requirement for people that actually become a B Corp. And you can go look in whatever country you're in and look at the B Corps and the companies are large or small, but they are basically audited to make sure that their supply chain, as well as everything else, is planned as well as people profit, et cetera. And if you're not sure about a company, look at their environmental policy and really, really dig into it. And if it's really loose terms saying, we aim to be sustainable, you could go, well, what does that mean? Is there any statistics? What is your baseline? What have you done? Does the company release reports? Some do, and a lot of companies publish them on their websites. And if you can't see the answers, email them or tweet them or at them in a social media and say, Hi, would love to know more about your sustainability policy because I can't find anything on your website. Tony Chocoloni, a chocolate brand. They look like Willy Wonka bars. They're absolutely amazing. Um, and they aim to be like slavery-free chocolate. And I saw a Instagram post for them last week. This would be sort of like early June. And they were talking about how they'd done a whole audit of their supply chain and they had found examples of slavery with some of the new suppliers that came on board as they started to expand. Now, in some ways you could go, well, why on earth is the company that is founded on no slavery actually reporting that they have found forms of slavery in their supply chain? The transparency means that they're going to do something about it. And they were saying, we want to be accountable. We are now working with our suppliers to make sure that this is eradicated and it's through education, it's through investment, and it is through being held accountable. So that's what I would love to see more companies acting like that and owning their whole responsibility from the start of their product all the way through to the end of its life and beyond. 
Yeah, we'd love to see you speak to the importance of verification as well. And of course, when you talked about a three sterling or three dollar, whatever currency in a product, how could that even be possible? Because a proper carbon tax for the transport and everything else that goes into it should be at least that. So yes, speak more about this whole industrial ecology and maybe some other factory models or businesses where they're really doing the right thing. Oh, so there's some great examples of different products in different ways. What, um, what is also encouraging to see, so from a technology perspective, we haven't talked about tech so much yet. And the companies that are actually looking at how their products can be dismantled or repaired, which is great. We now have products like the Fairphone, for example, which are phones that are, again, slavery free. And also they're designed in such a way that you can remove or upgrade elements according to your needs. So instead of it just being a blanket product that is made um, that then you have to fit your life to, we've seen products that are maybe adjustable. So it's an element that you can upgrade the memory or upgrade the camera when the camera gets, you know, or something breaks. You can just plug in a new module and the Fairphone is designed very much similar to like a Lego. Anybody can open it up. There is no issues with getting access. Whereas at the moment, if I was to undo my iPhone, um, this older model, I'd have a bit of a job. I'd need a special screwdriver. I'd have to remove different elements and then it would void the warranty. Whereas with something like the Fairphone, they are saying, yeah, open it up, take a look, look at all the modules, unplug one, plug a new one in. And it's that the ownership of things I think is going to change a lot with technology. We've also got um, examples of maybe, again, in the tech sphere, we've got Gerard Street, which is in the Netherlands. And they are a headphone brand. And instead of um, you buying the headphones and then, you know, somebody will sit on them or they'll get wet or whatever and they break, they offer a repair service for the headphones. So you are buying a circular model. You're not just buying a product. And they actually have a rental scheme as well. So you can rent the product for them. And then if it's not fit for purpose, doesn't fit your life anymore, you can swap it up. Mud Jeans are another one that's doing a rental model. So... You can think about renting a car for the day, renting, like you go to Airbnb, we're effectively renting a house for a short period. But, you know, renting clothing is something we're seeing. So whether it's something short, like uh, renting a prom dress. So for a big event, instead of buying something, you're just renting something. There are issues with regards to transportation on that and the cleaning of the product. And so there's some studies being done as to whether that kind of business model is maybe not as great when you incorporate all the different aspects of Delivery, packaging, transportation, cleaning after you've used it, re-delivery to the next user. Um, but that's another business model, the sort of the rental business model we're seeing a lot more of as well. Um, so there's lots of things that are sort of within the circular economy that are coming out and spurring out these new business models in really interesting ways. And it brings that question, which I think is the one that we all have to ask, because I ask myself, if you're renting, you're kind of subscribing to something that these subscription models, which are interesting, but what degree are you willing to sacrifice your personal autonomy to a big corporation or maybe, you know, an umbrella of corporations or a monopoly or a, a very well-organized city state? You personally, I know you're prepared to sacrifice, but what kind of model would you be willing to give up your freedoms to? Yeah. And that's a really interesting point. Um, one thing when I'm teaching, we teach about rentals. So I go through the different things, say, you know, when's the last time you rented something? Uh, and quite often the students be like, mm, well, maybe I rented like one of the bikes, the bike shares or something. And then I talk about Airbnb, talk about renting houses, talk about renting of cars, renting of films. 
talking about dematerialization of things. So you don't want to own, you know, a CD box anymore, but you want to have the access to the digital music on your phone, for example. But we do also talk about um, large products of so things like uh, washing machines and how laundrettes, we still have loads of laundrettes, washing and drying facilities that are shared in the city. Um, we have loads of them. We've got one on campus, the students use, because they don't all have washing machines in their own individual um, halls, for example. And I was like, why don't we have this everywhere? Why have we even got our own red, you know, why do we even own washing machines? And they go, time. The fact that you want to be able to wash your clothes when it suits you, not when you happen to be passing, at cost as well. So it might cost more to actually be using a community washing center than it does actually to own your own product. So yeah, there are lots of different offsets as to why something won't fit some person's life. And yeah, giving up your freedom in some way is something that needs to be considered. And what suits one person will not suit another person. So this is the other thing about circularity is that there are so many different models to what can be done. And it's not to say that everybody has to do the same one. There are lots of nuances. And in the book, I have like a wheel where you can kind of map where you might be 100%, you're like, you're great at the reuse, but then actually using something like renting something, you don't really do. Well, that's fine because that might not suit the way that you live your life. Whereas somebody else would be like, never buy anything new because I've got stuff that I can borrow or can rent. Whereas, you know what, I'm not so great at one of the others. And what I sort of talk about in the book is how all of these different behaviors, regardless of whether you're one to 10 on the scale of everything, once you overlay all of those different webs from all of us, they create a complete circle because the strength of one person's actions will be, you know, the weakness of somebody else's. So actually when we build all of our actions, that's when we complete something that's actually really, really workable. Your website uses the phrase uh, designed for disassembly. How do you apply this to your own designs? So one thing that I reckon any designer should be able to do is if you could design something to be put together, you could design something to be taken apart. So this is just basically the reverse of how you might be designing in such a way to be put together. But it also means that you think about things like fixings. So for example, instead of something being a snap fit, which is literally as it's sort of described, two pieces of material, quite often plastic, one will have like a little tooth element and it'll just feed and it will snap in place and it might create like a casing, for example. That's great to put it together, but then you can't get it apart without that little tooth snapping off if you were trying to prise them apart, for example. So instead of it being something that is just like a single snap together, then you design it in such a way that you have a different type of fixing, which means you can open it without it breaking. Um, there are things that are actually what we call mechanically fixed together. So they are screwed. They're not glued. So as soon as you glue something together, unless you've got a way to deactivate that glue, and there are many examples where people are able to do this, like with carpet tiles, interface basically have all of these different layers together, but they also have the ability to remove those layers from one another. Um, if you have something that's screwed together, then you're able to get access to that to allow the material to be separated and it may be reprocessed or something to be repaired as well. So if you're not designing for disassembly, you're already kind of resigning that product to be not able to be repaired, not able to be dismantled, those materials not able to be reused. Um, and you're kind of consigning a product often to landfill or incineration because reprocessing or repair will be impossible. 
And so as you think about the future, what were some teachers or life lessons that were important to you as you reflect on the beauty and wonder of the natural world and the kind of planet that we're leaving for the next generation? What would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Oh, wow. What a lovely question. Um, I quite often talk about how you protect what you love. And I'm very lucky growing up in Brighton in the UK. I'm right on the seafront. As a kid, I wanted to be a marine biologist, like a lot of kids in the city. And I loved the natural world. I love, you probably hear the seagulls actually right on cue. <laughs> um, I love the natural world. I had access to green spaces. We went on holiday to the New Forest, which is you know, just down the coast. Uh, and a world without that and having... The awe of nature is just, I can't even imagine that. And I'm very lucky that I did have that as an upbringing. And that's something that I would want all of the next generations to have in some way or another, to have the ability to access and be amazed by how staggeringly beautiful, complicated, uh, awful in some ways, and just brutal the natural world is. But then really sit and think about how the natural world just gets on and does it. It doesn't need interference from us. It doesn't need us to design particular space. It just does it. And I look out the window and there's trees that are just doing their thing without any interference from us whatsoever. And they're doing it in such a beautifully connected and inclusive way that they're supporting each other and every species is benefited from everybody else. And you could remove humans from that equation and nature would just carry on doing its thing. So that's what I would love for people to see and to realize is that nature is so incredibly beautiful and diverse. And so are we. So how can we take the beauty and diversity of the natural world and actually learn a lot more and stop thinking we're separate from nature because we are pretty much, we are all part of that same biosphere on the planet. A lot we can learn from the beauty and the resiliency of nature. And, you know, as you say, just looking at trees and the way they support other trees and communicate with each other. It's, yeah, we've got a lot to learn. So thank you, Claire Potter, for your inventive designs and important insights into the circular economy, your commitment to community initiatives and helping us rethink our current systems so that we can have a green and fair future for everyone. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute delight to talk to you both. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview is conducted by Mia Funk and Abby Gray with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Abby Gray. Digital Media Coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.